Um, my name is Dr. Carol Palmer, and I'm the director of the CBRL, Council for British Research in the Levant, in Aman, Jordan. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, CBRL, I'll say a little bit about us for those of you who don't know us. CBRL is, a, uh, is one of the British International Research Institutes affiliated with the British Academy in London. And we, our mission is to promote the knowledge and understanding of, of the Levant, particularly from the perspectives of the knowledge um, and research that can be gained in the social sciences and humanities and related fields. We have, um, as many of you will know, we have um, our base uh, is in London at the British Academy, and we have two institutes in the region, one in East Jerusalem, the Kenyan Institute, and the Amman Institute that is based in Amman, of course, at Jordan. Today, um, we're delighted uh, to, have with, to have with us um, two speakers, um, Shava Abu Khafaja and Christina Luke, um, who are going to speak on the topic of the politics of heritage from the perspective of um, two articles that they wrote that were published in Contemporary Levant in 2019 and 2021. Um, both were prize-winning articles, the, the prize-winning articles of both those years. And in, in bringing them together today, we wanted to exchange notes on the sort of similar themes and threads, um, dissimilar themes and threads on this very important um, topic and the background political environment of heritage. Um, Jordan has a very, very rich heritage and a long engagement um, in uh, both uh, both archaeology, a long history of archaeological exploration, and also um, tourism, gaining tourism from it. And also with various international organizations, as we will hear. What I'm going to do now is introduce you to our chair for today, um, Dr. Paul Burtonshaw, who is going to be... Um, uh, who's going to be introducing our speakers, but also um, starting the question and answer session at the, at the end of it. Paul Burtonshaw is an independent specialist in cultural heritage and sustainable development. Um, and he's worked on a number of community development projects. And I, I know a number of them from, from Jordan, where, where CBRL has also worked with him. And in the past, he's also held a CBRL fellowship at our Amman Institute. Um, he holds a PhD from UCL in Heritage and Economic Development. And most, and relatively recently, actually, was <laughs> the Director of Projects at, at the Sustainable Preservation Initiative until 2019. So, Paul, if I, can, if I may hand over to you to give the introductions and welcome again for today. Thank you very much, Carol, and welcome everyone to um, what promised to be a very uh, interesting uh, session and discussion about these two very rightly uh, prize-winning uh, papers. As, um, it forced, as Carol was saying, it forced me to introduce our two speakers um, who will be presenting their papers um, uh, on behalf of their co-authors as well. So firstly, uh, Professor Shafa Abu Khafaja will present, drawing on her paper co-authored with Reham Magdadi, um, entitled Prejudice, Military Intelligence and Neoliberalism, e examining the local within archaeology and heritage practices in Jordan. Uh, professor Abu Khafaja is currently an associate professor at Hashemite University in Sarka in Jordan, her work will be well known to many of you uh, in our audience as someone who has examined the politics and role of cultural heritage from the community perspective and has uh, consistently put the voices of community members um, on heritage at the forefront of her work while situating such voices within political theory. I know that uh, her work's been very 
useful to, to my own um, for what, with uh, what I've been doing in Jordan as well. And continuing that scholarship, um, I'd point out that Chateau is co-editing a book with Awa Badran and Sarah Elliott entitled Community Heritage in the Arab Region, Values and Practices that will be published by Springer later this year. So please do look out for that. That presentation will be followed by Professor Christina Luke, who are presenting based on her and Lynn Meskel's paper, Developing Petra, UNESCO, the World Bank and America in the Desert. Those in the audience with any background in heritage be well aware of Lynn Meskel's extensive scholarship on cultural heritage, and in particular the international politics of such heritage. Professor Luke is the Associate Professor of Archaeology and History of Art at Koç University in Istanbul in Turkey. She's been involved in a fantastic variety of uh, heritage and archaeology projects globally. For this paper and presentation um, in particular, she brings her deep knowledge of cultural policy in the wider Near East region. Um, and I'll highlight to you her recent book, uh, A Pearl in Peril, Heritage and Diplomacy in Turkey. And so with those brief introductions, I will invite Shatha to uh, begin her presentation. Thank you very much, Paul. Right. So thank you both for the introduction. It's an honor to share this platform with you and Christina. I've been reading your work avidly, and I am really excited to be with you today. So in this presentation, I'll be exploring the main points that Reham and I have addressed in our article entitled Examining the Local in Archaeology and Heritage Practices in Jordan. I expect to run for around 20 minutes, and I will be examining the gap between the people of the Arab region, Jordan in specific, and the past during three different but strongly relevant times, the colonial time and the knowledge it produced, the conventional neoliberal practices that are marked with tourism-based and economic-oriented approach to heritage, I will then focus on how this gap is being allegedly bridged when cultural heritage and sustainable development become entwined themes in archaeology and heritage practices. It's been really interesting to see how scholars' engagement with people living near the sites where they are working has been crucial to their archaeological and heritage projects in Jordan. Scholars are increasingly publicizing their work through public lectures and social media, and they try to capture their interaction with members of the local community, teaching, training, and empowering them in an endeavor to deliver development. Now, this interaction seems a far cry from the cheap labor and goofball boy encounters that defined the beginning of archaeology in the region. But as Kuhn and Weiss state, and I quote, heritage studies need a more anthropologically nuanced and theoretically informed understanding of neoliberalism, governmentality, and human rights to address the changing conditions of heritage regulation and to understand the political struggle in which new heritageized claims are now implicated, end quote. Therefore, we return to the formative years of archaeology in order to understand the colonial history of archaeology and the power dynamics of coloniality and how coloniality and power dynamics created and fit this gap between people and the past. Now, colonial archaeology produced its, its power lies in, in producing a formative knowledge that proved to be authoritative, persistent, and cyclical, a knowledge that is repeated so often and so confidently that it is taken to be true all the time. The adverse image of people's relationship with the past is a crucial part of this knowledge. And in this knowledge, the people of the region have been portrayed as, at best, apathetic to the past and uninformed of its significance, and therefore they need to be ed educated, at worst, they are thieves who are accountable for the devastation of cultural heritage, and therefore they need to be regulated, governed, and managed. From my perspective, colonial archaeology and its power dynamic are captured in this photo. It represents the powerful and the powerless, 
the Western archaeologist to the right, obviously, and a member of the local community standing in an archaeological site in Iraq in 1910. Now, this photo was taken by the renowned British female scholar Gertrude Bell. Bell was hard to, to fit into a single box. She read history in Oxford, one of the first women to, to study in Oxford, but she was also an archeologist by passion and practice. But most importantly, she is a member of the intelligence system, which included other notable figures such as T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence Al-Arab, who inhabited the area between decision makers and Western politicians on the one hand, and us, Arab, on the other hand. Her political role in the region was mirrored in the political new realities and entities that Bilad al-Sham was divided into by the Sykes-Pico agreement. Gertrude Bell wrote to Mark Sykes in 1915, soon before the British and the French um, divided the region among themselves that, I quote, the Arabs cannot rule themselves. No one is more aware of that than I, end quote. This map of Bilad al-Sham, as the Sykes-Pico agreement had it, and the intelligence and archaeologists behind it reflect the main concepts of Benedict Anderson's book, Imagined Communities. In this book, archaeology and mapping are identified as colonial instruments used to promote particular pasts, people, and places while ignoring others for political purposes. This was put into practice through biblical archaeology since the Jewish history in Bilad al-Sham was pushed to the foreground in order, in order to legitimize the occupation of Palestine. The new realities and political entities that colonial archaeology helped to generate continue to shape the politics in the region. The point is that not only the people of the region were alienated from the past, but the past itself was colonized and used to, to legitimize colonization. Now, moving on from colonial archaeology, we come to the heritage-based development projects that were implemented in post-colonial Jordan since the second half of the 20th century. And the most prominent of these projects are those funded by the World Bank. They optimize, literally optimize neoliberalism in action. Their importance lie in, in their execution on an urban scale, and therefore they impact, directly impact um, people's everyday life. The project I'll be referring to here was carried out in the city of Jarash, the eastern part of, of Jarash, between 1997 and 2005, as part of the World Bank's second development project in the city. Now, beside the intact Roman city that Jarash is famous for, and that you can see in the slide here with the famous colonnaded street and the forum, the city was also influential in the early Islamic history in the region. It's worth mentioning that the long ignored early Islamic history of Jarash and the resilience of its people at that time have recently gained, gained attention thanks to the work of researchers such as Alan Wilmesley and Louis Blanc. Of course, ignoring the history that is most relevant to people's traditions and culture, and that is the Islamic past, also widened this gap between the people and the past. For the purposes of this presentation, I focus on the project that took place in a plaza in the eastern part of the city where modern Jarash grew in the late uh, 19th century. It was meant, the project was meant to revive the plaza as a touristic destination and to encourage tourists to spend longer time in Jarash by visiting the eastern part of it. I took this photo for the plaza in 1994, long before the project was executed, and I was fascinated by the various layers of time and activity in it. The plaza is defined by the Roman Eastern path you can see in the background and the commercial strip, the modern commercial strip that was built in the 50s of the last century. You can see the edge of it 
uh, with the soft drink uh, sign, Pepsi sign to your right hand side. And of course, the bus station and the vendors in front of the Roman bath. I took this long before the digital photography, so it's not that clear, but you can see it here. Um, what you cannot see here is, uh, and standing opposite the commercial strip is a mosque called Al Hashimi Mosque, built in 1930. Actually, the plaza is the outdoor extension of the mosque. The bus station has served Jarash and the neighboring town since the 60s and was essential part of the plaza's life since that time. Now, this is how the plaza appeared once the project was completed. The new version was designed to put the tourists at ease. The vendors had to go. The shops had been closed and renovated because the original plan had been for them to sell only souvenirs for the tourists who were expected to arrive in their hundred to this part of the city after the completion of the project. The bus station had to be re relocated, of course. And when we spoke to the people about the project, many issues emerged, but the main one was that the relocation of the bus terminal to a remote area was problematic. The World Bank described this core issue in its assessment report published in 2007 by stating that the new bus stop is, and I quote, unusable, especially by women who preferred not to be in such an isolated spot, get on and off the buses in the major streets, therefore adding to the traffic jam. Now reading this, one cannot help but wonder how much money, time and effort were wasted by selecting a wrong location this could have been avoided if the local people had been consulted in the selection of the new location. Worldwide, projects like this one have failed to deliver development to the communities they intended to serve. One particular issue raised by the critical literature on neoliberal development is how it fosters the colonial notion of development as being supplied by foreign money and expertise, and how the recipients do not have much agency to influence these projects and make them work for their, for their own. In reaction to this socio-economic failure, neoliberal policymakers were forced to go beyond economic politics and focus on socio-cultural ones. As a result, the notion of inclusive neoliberalism appeared in the International Development Aid Discourse. It indicates concepts such as good governance, sustainable development, empowerment, capacity building, and participatory methodologies. Experts of the first world countries, funded by programs with neoliberal agenda, began to plan their projects with local communities' inclusiveness at the center of their efforts. Now, it's important to note that inclusiveness in neoliberal politics corresponds with earlier advancement in archaeological theories and practices. One significant transition occurred when the new archaeology theory, with its scientific and resource-oriented approach to the past, gave way to more dynamic and inclusive uh, theories. Post-processual archaeology and con contextual archaeology are prominent examples of these theories that help to bring social science to archaeology and integrate them together. On the UNESCO level, Bura Charter reflects earlier acknowledgement and recognition of local knowledge and practice, marking a significant shift from earlier UNESCO conventions and their Eurocentric approaches. Also, public awareness and community outreach programs are common practices and tactics used by international archaeologists operating in post-colonial contexts all over the world. This inclusion is made in hope to make people less tempted to encroach on archaeological sites. Now, from the outside, inclusive neoliberalism appears to invert the top-down approach and mitigate the market logic and tourism 
orientation that conventional neoliberalism led. However, critical literature and in-depth examination demonstrate that inclusive neoliberalism, even if unintentionally, fostered the colonial notion of development as something exogenous, where the included communities are mostly apprentices in heritage tourism and um, heritage conservation projects. What is intended to be a participatory approach to sustainable development soon turned into expert-driven projects operating within the aid industry and donor culture. One of the most important lessons we have learned from the region's history is that the discipline of archaeology and heritage will always mirror the politics of funding organizations, be them imperial powers, colonial powers, or neoliberal development bodies. We also learned that development cannot be delivered. To be intentional and sustainable, development must grow from within the localities. As policies proliferate and fade, international experts will always be influential in the field of archaeology and heritage practices in the region, in the Arab region in general, and in Jordan. In hope to mark possible departure point for future reflection, and for scholars to be true agents of development, we propose that self-reflexivity should be essential part of inclusive approaches. Part of self-reflexivity is to address what Michael Hertzfield identified as a lingering intellectual colonialism, and that is how coloniality still operates in the field especially through the imbalanced power dynamics between scholars and local communities and the differences in values, the scholars' academic set of heritage values and the community's heritage values. Approaching local communities as active equal partners with their own knowledges to contribute requires listening to the people. I'm referring here to Peter Schmidt and Alice Keough's book, Archaeologies of Listening, when I say that scholars should use their privileged status and intellectual authority to accept locals as thinkers. Now, accepting local communities as thinkers will help scholars to break the colonial knowledge cycle by allowing local knowledges to influence and complement the way scholars identify and approach cultural heritage in, in their sustainable projects. Let us wrap up with this mural painting that appeared last year on Amman's walls. A Jordanian man with a Nabatian adaptation of Quranian capital on his head. Let us see this painting with Bill's photo we started this presentation with. My students and I pondered the meaning, the meanings of this painting. Some of us believe that this meant that Jordanians are burdened by the past and the way it is being managed. Others said that this is Jordan, the past and the present moving together toward the future, maybe capitalizing on tourism to persevere in the face of adversity. But an intriguing insight came from an interview I had with Maryam long before the subject was drawn. When I asked Maryam, a lady in her 70s, living in Jabal al-Qala, um, the, uh, the citadel of Amman, about the preservation of the past, she said, and I quote, we do not preserve the past, we are living in the past. I live and practice a tradition that is almost 1500 years old. This might not be the past you are asking about as a university professor, but it is my past and my people's past, end quote. Mariam was right. I felt listening to her that she is leading me away from my project's goals and my own understanding of the past and its material. When I asked her that question, I expected her to talk about embroidery as heritage, Little did I know that Maryam would present me with a poem she wrote in celebration of her traditions that gave her roots and energy to persevere and flourish. 
Now, reflecting on Maryam's answers years later, I find that her reference to tradition as a concept that bridge the past, the present, and the future is something that goes beyond the economic model of sustainability. It is something worth listening to, learning from, and adding to my own understanding of the past and its material. After all, cultural heritage for sustainable development programs are about establishing that link between the past, the present, to face the contemporary challenges and to build a better future. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Shatha. That's a fantastic presentation. And um, I now invite Christina to uh, begin hers. Thank you very much. Um, Lynn is sorry she can't be with us tonight. Uh, we are both very humbled by the honor to be here. And I just want to make clear that neither one of us uh, see our work as a specialist in Jordan. Um, so in being invited to this and sharing the stage, uh, we are um, very grateful just for the opportunity. Um, what we wanted to do um, in our paper um, was look at the intersection between UNESCO, the World Bank, and America, and in so doing, offer a bit more historiography, and particularly historiography focused on the 1960s and into the 1970s. Um, I'll focus more on the 1960s um, in the brief words that I'll give now. Um, so in the Petra case study, um, we saw more an opportunity not to look at Petra per se, but to look at the networks of leadership and consultancies in this trajectory, um, much about what we've just heard. Um, and look at the, the rise of technical assistance, um, how it becomes integrated into policy, and then how it became part of practice, uh, specifically also how UNESCO's mission transformed um, over time, and the real fading of internationalism that had been a hallmark um, of what it was as an organization attempting to do, and then the rise of tourism um, in this arc, and what I would argue is kind of the legacy of the the slogan that we often hear now, heritage is a driver of economic development. So these are the, the components that we wanted to explore and saw opportunity for. We are looking particularly at the American perspective here. And while this may be um, perhaps um, obvious to this audience, I think it's um, necessary to go over some of these key benchmarks. Uh, the Truman Doctrine um, flooded um, a lot of resources into Greece and Turkey, um, followed by the Marshall Plan, and then the Point Four program, perhaps lesser known, but um, conceptualized as both the New Deal for the world. Um, and then in, in this particular um, area as well, the Eisenhower Doctrine became um, quite powerful. Uh, programs that ran parallel with these uh, were at uh, the United Nations. Um, so, for example, the extended program of technical assistance, um, UNESCO's participant program, the UN Fund for Economic Development, and then into the 1960s, how tourism becomes integrated into the five-year plans um, throughout the Middle East. Um, and I've also been following this um, in Turkey as well as um, Iran and Tunisia. Um, critical in this was the American participation and the endorsement of, quote, the UN Decade of Development, which was um, fostered by John F. Kennedy and his executive order um, of 3 November 1961. Um, so this is the founding of the United States Agency for, the, for International Development. And with this, we see a, a turn where international assistance became a hallmark of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and I think more can be done at this nexus point and what they were intending. Um, there are a couple people I want to mention. Um, there's Ambassador McComber, who was ambassador to Jordan um, under Kennedy. And then he went on to be a leader um, and took on a serious role in how USAID would deploy dollars. Um, he served then under Johnson in this capacity. And then there's another individual I want to call out, um, Robert McNamara. And at this point, um, he is U.S. Secretary um, of Defense. Um, so kind of a very small group, and there were a few more guys as well in this, um, but they were kind of beginning to play with how the U.S. at least would be, participate in the larger development schemes. 
in this, um, by 1963 then, USAID gave a, a grant to uh, Jordanian authorities for a tourism development plan. And I know very little about this, only what I've seen in archives, um, and it's just a mention. So knowing more about this would be fantastic. Um, they had a very long list of sites that they had hoped that the um, authorities would implement according to their plan. Um, it didn't work. And so they pulled back and looked for a new partner um, and how they might go about um, deploying tourism as part of what they thought would be a, a good foreign policy. They were working with the US CIA as well as the State Department in, in this sort of planning. Then enter one particular man. Um, can you see him here? I think you can, yeah. Um, Henry Detweiler. Um, he was given, he was approached as president of ASOR to take on a contract, to take over the contract. And he was very apprehensive about this. Um, and ASOR wasn't set up um, to take the contract at the time. And so he had to convince Cornell University where he was serving as um, Dean of Architecture and was a professor there. And Cornell agreed reluctantly. And I say reluctantly because this comes through in so much of his correspondence where he felt like he was, quote, caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. Um, and I think his words here are important to stress um, that he saw that nexus of politics and archaeology very clear, and he felt the pressure of being caught up in it. And he says, we made a compromise in order to fill our American obligations in Jordan, and these obligations are very real, and we cannot escape them if we as citizens are to accept our share in the foreign policy of our government. Um, so I became interested in this particular man because of my work um, in Turkey. He was also serving as the assistant director of Sardis, and he'd participated in consul consultation uh, for the work that was ongoing in Egypt. So he was no foreigner to development. And when USAID gave him a very long list of sites that he was to transform in a very short period of time in Jordan, um, he was cautious about it. And in the end, uh, after about a year, just over a year, um, he decided that he wasn't cut out for this and he couldn't work in the way that USAID had envisioned. Um, so I, here's the closing um, of his letter where he um, pulls back from the contract. And he says, this has been a very informative year for me and the American schools of oriental research. There were times during those long trips to the Near East in the depth of winter when I was uncertain about the future. However, we have been dislodged from our ivory tower and we have survived the year, but I am afraid the atmosphere around the schools will never be the same. We do not regret our action and we feel that a real contribution has been made to Jordanian-American relations. And I circle that because that was what he envisioned and was committed to. And the correspondence with USAID made clear that they wanted much more of a top-down sort of arrangement. And Detweiler said, I'm not prepared to do that. It's not what I'm committed to. And he also said, I'm also not prepared to do the sort of planning that you are asking of us and particularly these um, 10 to 20 sites that you want. And so he directed them towards the US Department of Interior. And within that, the contract that went to the US National Park Service. And others have written about this a bit, but I think there's a lot more to tease out here. That very long list got taken down to two sites, Juresh and Petra. And Petra definitely got more attention and the report that came out of that is much longer. Um, and so that was where Lynn and I were thinking about whether we were going to focus more on the archival research for Duresh or more on Petra, and this is why we um, chose Petra. This comes at an interesting moment in international development. Uh, it's a time when UNESCO has made a clear investment in tourism, um, and they've also decided that they're going to partner with the UN Development Program. Um, and they chose uh, three countries to do this in, Turkey, Iran, and Peru. And so this is part of um, ongoing work that I would just wanted to bring in um, just to kind of give a regional context. They declared 1967 as the International Tourist Year. Um, at the same time, of course, 
political relationships and boundaries shift uh, in this area of the world. And so it's a very um, contentious time. About a year later then, in 1968, we have a new commander in chief at the World Bank, um, and that is Robert McNamara. Recall he was serving as US Secretary of Defense under the Kennedy and Johnson administrations and was very influential in setting up USAID. Um, and what he does is he immediately forms a special department for tourism. And with this turn, I think we have a very important moment in the history of how the World Bank becomes involved in tourism. So banking on Petra then. Um, this is one of the first sites um, to get uh, a very large check um, and loan from um, the bank, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and they pour their efforts into Petra. And I've put up the National Park Service plan because so much of what happened here and the emphasis on the hospitality industry um, you can tease out from uh, kind of, if you will, the back shadows of the National Park Service plan. UNESCO also becomes much more involved in what's going on. There's a cautionary letter, uh, more than cautionary, that comes from uh, Paul Power, who's involved in this work. And I quote here, he writes, the World Bank, the Americans may, may see antiquities like phosphates and chicken farms, just another development project. I'd say Petra needs defending from the bulldozer men and maybe the Americans too, by every big gun that UNESCO can bring up. So at this point, he's seeing UNESCO as a middle um, diplomatic kind of uh, focus and partner. Um, and yet UNESCO became more and more caught up um, through the 1960s. This is what 1970s, this is what we see in the archives, and then in through the 1980s in this consultancy culture. And so I'll um, end here where we see the rise of the consultancy culture specific to Petra. There's a technological and assistance onslaught. Um, what we see in the archives is consultants really lost sight of their mission. Um, they became much more focused on this development industrial complex there's a fading role of in-country agency. There's a real exclusion of communities. Um, and there's a transfer of preferred foreign partners, kind of these no-bid contracts, and particularly the role of Chemonix uh, um, that steps into the international development realm. So this kind of brings up to the, the closing part of our paper, which ends um, at the beginning of the 1980s or so. So of course we have all the, the time period um, since this point um, that we can talk about and question and answer. Um, but I, hopefully the, the small historiography is, is useful in the, the larger context. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Christina. Thank you very much to uh, both speakers. I'm sure you will, will join me in congratulating uh, both the speakers on, the, on being recognised by uh, Contemporary Levant, the journal, and their prizes, and I'm sure everyone agrees it's very well deserved. Um, I just want to add to those presentations that we often, in cultural heritage, speak of working both in the kind of global and local, national, international, um, personal and institutional, but um, it's often very difficult to do, and we often get siloed back into to one of those or the others when we're looking, and for me, at least, the both papers were very successful in in bridging those those gaps and showing sometimes the the issues or conflicts um, that arise from these different scales uh, coming together and the very real, real issues of power um, with those different those different groups and who has it, who who doesn't have it, and what stories and narratives and actions therefore result. And I know as somebody who has worked with institutional and donor demand and, and local communities, um, both in, in Jordan and elsewhere, um, the kind of difficulties of doing that. And both, both papers and presentations today gave me a lot um, of self-reflection and, and things to think about, I'm sure, for others um, watching as well. They, they, certainly, they certainly did so. Um, and so on that, please do um, put your questions in the Q&A uh, feature for our presenters. We will try and get to as many uh, topics as possible. So please uh, use that um, to ask whatever you would like to ask. We, I see we have a couple of questions in there already, but I will 
take the privilege of chair to uh, just begin the discussion while people are thinking of their questions they're putting them in there um at the end of her presentation there um Shatha raises the important role of self-reflection uh, the self-reflexive approach and listening to kind of break these cycles of colonialism and local participation um so perhaps i to start questions is to ask whether funding um, bodies be them academic or international and this consultancy culture we have in now whether they allow whether their time frames their, their their approaches allow for such listening um, and reflection within culture uh, i just wonder what your, your both biggest thoughts on that would be uh sure i think you're still muted you want to go first please please Shatha, yeah okay well i think uh if the funding bodies are are claiming to have a sustainable approach to cultural heritage they should be willing to put the time and the effort uh, to listen to the local communities and to use this listening um, uh, to, to shape their projects. I mean, this will be the difference between them and the conventional uh, neoliberalism that, ha- that the, the world has witnessed before. And I think one specific issue that prevents scholars from listening and maybe delving into um, localities is that many projects focus on approaching the most vulnerable communities in in poverty pockets and focusing on empowering them through their projects, either economically or by capacity building. And I I think in this context, there is not much more, uh, much room to, to listen to the other and consider them as real partners. Scholars will be um, very much occupied with delivering help through um, economic empowerment or training. And that is valid and required. I mean, by no means I am denigrating the importance of um, making cultural heritage working for economy. But I think um, these communities can also be involved on an intellectual level while being apprentices in these projects. And um, the, the key element would be for these funding bodies and the scholars affiliated with these funding bodies is to have this, um, what um, uh, Peter Schmidt called the epistemic humility to allow for uh, this listening to happen and to forge the projects. Um, and I think the energy that will come from this epistemic humility can bring energy to these projects uh, and make them change. The change won't be drastic and dramatic as most of the funding bodies would like to see, but it will be impactful, slow and intentional and uh, impactful. And um, just a final thought on your great question, um, uh, Paul. I think um, it's very important for the receiving countries of of this um, um, uh, help and and funding, they should have a national agenda or a national uh, bodies, national incubators, schools and universities where, where these international funding bodies and funding uh, heritage projects can be accommodated intellectually and practically, practically. I mean, the absence or the lack of um, role that national bodies have in uh, heritage projects that are funded by foreign bodies or international bodies enhance this idea that the past is only approachable through um, international um, experts and that the local bodies are only apprentices uh, in the heritage industry that is almost always run by uh, from outside. And um, I think um, it's very important if that uh, this kind of national bodies are to agree to exist it's very important for them to um, recognize that they are not there to fill a political gap a representational gap they they are there to to be um, seen and looked at but also to be heard and be ready to to change these projects in order to serve uh, the local communities so um the direct response to your, to your question would be, I think there are some changes that are happening in the field. 
uh, that will allow for this listening to happen. Thank you, Sharon. And, and Christine, do you see from, you know, the mechanisms you're seeing of funding, are they adapting to to bring in some of these new new practices to allow for listening, allow for some of that feedback of, of information coming locally? Are you, are you seeing those trends? Um, well, Shata's been kind, I think. Um, I, I, I am seeing that slowly, but I'm, I'm constantly aware of this, um, having moved and now live in the, in the country where I do a lot of work. And well, who defines an in-country partner and their levels of um, education and how we privilege certain types of education and not others, um, how we privilege or don't place. So, for example, if your local partner um, from a funding body you know, in the UK or in the United States or in Germany is located in Istanbul, that's different than if you're trying to implement a project in a rural community some, someplace else. And so there's still the distancing that takes place. There's still um, language divides. And so I, I think there needs to be time to cultivate those relationships. And too often we're constrained by the funding cycles. You know, I, I've learned when the British um, fiscal year happens and I know when you have to get your reports and you have to you turn them in um, and other people that I work with they say oh well we only had six months or eight months to do something sorry we didn't have time to share it with you and so I think that the the funding bodies themselves are constrained by re- reporting to their constituents and I know if you're if you're spending U.S. federal dollars you are reporting to the U.S. people and trying to make a case for why U.S. taxpayers should be funding anything outside of the United States. Um, and yet, if you want that money to really work, I, I agree, there needs to be time for listening. And that time needs to happen on its own scale without taking an, an absorbent amount of time. But that ebbs and flows depending on holiday schedules, depending on now pandemic schedules. Um, so yes, I'm seeing that. Um, but I, where I see that constraint is actually coming from the funding body itself. We have exactly, I, I was going to ask you, Christine, as well, to from that kind of where you see the future of foreign um, expertise or global expertise in cultural heritage in Jordan and the region. And we've also um, I've just noticed one of the questions that came in um, on the Q&A would be what points you'd like to make to the Biden administration if invited to. So I might put those together on like you, you mentioned again some of these mechanisms, but kind of on a, on a, you know, expanding that a little bit. What might you see is where global expertise is heading here? And if you uh, had the ear of Biden administration or any administration into the future, what point would you want to make and directing um, how global expertise might play a role um, in the future in cultural heritage? I think we're perhaps having um, the body of experts um, be much richer. There are many people who are qualified um, and there are people we don't know necessarily. They're not in the network. So I I'm terrible at networking myself. I'm terrible at social media. Um, And yet, how do you find people that are committed to that listening um, and the time? Um, To a certain extent, it requires widening our expanse, widening our own networks, widening our ability to trust other people. And so that you don't have the revolving door of the same people working for the same contracts. Um, And yet it the same time, I think it's good to have continuity. And so people who learn and who are take a leadership role in one project, maybe they are part of another project, but not in a leadership role. And so they're more part of the collaboration in the group um, and that you take training seriously. And it's not, I mean, I, I worked when I was at the US Department of State for a, a bit and then doing some training with customs agents there was always this learn English in three weeks and then you will be trained and you can do this. And I think, no, it takes an entire high school career to learn a language. Um, And then you need to go through an undergraduate degree and then through a master's degree 
and a PhD. And that takes time, no matter what country we're in. And so letting that time happen and giving that sort of training um, in country um, and allowing for the fostering of those communications between different elements, I think is really important when we talk about training, that it's not just a, a six month or an eight month training, but it's embedded and woven into um, the university system. And what Shatha said was it more about having a, I don't know if it's a national clearinghouse, but a mechanism where those universities can understand what's going on. Um, and so much of, at least in Turkey, um, there are mechanisms for that in place um, with the Council of Higher Education, for example. So um, just understanding more about how these countries actually function internally and not trying to change them necessarily, but to leverage that um, in the way that they would like to see that happen and the way that perhaps external experts can best be um, best participate in that. Thank you very much. And I've, I've been reminded in the Q&A that was a, the Biden administration question is a question for both speakers. So I'll, uh, I'll also ask uh, Shatha as well, if, if you have the opportunity to kind of um, talk to somebody like the US administration or perhaps other countries' administrations as well, what, what you would like, what kind of key points you would like to make for them is one of the questions come in. And I'm also, one of the questions that came in, which I'll package in with this um, as part of that, maybe to the to the Jordan authorities as well, is um, uh, the need for change in some of those those institutions, um, kind of resistance to change sometimes in some of these um, administrations to to try out new approaches um, and the, the the difficulty sometimes of effective community participation. So, um, yeah, what on an international level, somebody like the Biden administration, what key points would you like to make and um, how does that also translate to, to Jordanian authorities and administration? Mm. Um, I, I think it would be really, um, uh, um, I would be the, the, the terrible choice to speak to, to someone in uh, authoritative uh, position in any foreign country. But uh, I think um, um, basically the board is, is being led by um, um, revolutionary movements that ha- that are a result of accumulative criti- criticism that has been happening for decades now since um, many of um, um, countries in the world has gained their independency and um, there has been um, accumulative criticism of the foreign intervention in these countries. So I think... Um, it would be really important for those in power to understand that um, these contexts ha- have evolved and the relationship between different contexts have changed. Um, and it's time for um, this uh, accumulated criticism to have this uh, new momentum and new, new energy. And I can see that coming from um, uh, movements such as decoloniality, where there is always um, uh, trial to understand how coloniality happened and how we can decolonize these contexts. So uh, I think it's very important for politics and academians to get together in order to solve this dilemma, to have uh, more academics on board who are willing to to listen and educate themselves about uh, local communities and I'm really optimistic about um, this movement in decoloniality, where there is always um, um, a trial to understand how local knowledges can change the, um, that set of knowledge that has been manufactured by the West and became a global uh, knowledge. So this may be a good advice for someone in authority to um delve into localities and to educate themselves more about the localities. And um, I always refer to this example when I teach. uh, um, Actually, um, Cairo is full of uh, Sabil or water features that were preserved by looking them down and by preserving their aesthetic values and by cutting water from them in order to preserve them. And that was the reason why these um, 
monuments were uh, destroyed and neglected by the local community because they lost their use and their meaning for the local community. So for uh, local and Western scholars to have this mindset that this is the only way to preserve uh, without listening to the local communities and see that the only way to make these monuments survive is to have them in use and to have them uh, do what they have been doing for decades uh, and to continue in use for the local community. So I think uh, politicians need to see that firsthand and local scholars uh, need to um, educate themselves more about local communities in order to be able to make an influence on politicians. Um, I'm not sure if that's the right answer, but yes, getting uh, more into context and understanding of the other might be a way out of this circle. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, we're getting a a few other questions here on the the Q&A. I'll take one from uh, uh, Maria Elena Ronza, who um, you may both know um, is very involved with community uh, archaeology in Jordan and she asks community-based organizations in Jordan and I'm sure elsewhere often cannot present projects and proposals with an asset-based approach but rather a problem-based approach i.e the funders have to come in and, and solve a local problem in some way um, I would like to ask the opinion of both presenters about this challenge of always having to present ourselves and vun- as vulnerable and I think this comes back to a lot of the colonial and um, development uh, uh, kind of ideology that you've both been talking about so I'll invite uh, Christina. Why don't you take this first? <laughs> this kind of idea of presenting us as the, the receivers as vulnerable. Um, yeah, or what I like to say, the crisis-driven approach. Um, there, you know, if it's not in conflict, they don't want to fund it. Um, and yet, um, maybe if we just started doing cultural policy and cultural funding. Um, some people might call it proactive or some people might just call it embedded. Like it's just part of what you do. No one's asking about why you're funding healthcare. Um, well, they are now a little bit um, or certainly why you're funding militaries. And so if, you know, it's a drop in the bucket compared to um, the military complex that's out there these days. And so if we could literally weave a thread where cultural aspects are just part of what foreign policy is about, um, whether it's the Biden administration or the next one. That's the problem, is that it's it's contingent on who's in charge, and this does um, forever change things. You know, it can you have a great line of funding for three years, and all of a sudden it's dead. Um, and so you're left picking up pieces, and that, that's not sustainable. Uh, So trying to understand that there is a lifeline and that there are people and communities involved and that we need to be sustainable in what we're doing and that that's not necessarily um, a tourism pass Um, and that that tourism is really dangerous. Um, And there are other ways of of thinking about this and that lived in integrative spaces um, that you're talking about. So trying to get out of the crisis-driven moment and maybe looking at um, resilience is a current um, real important thread that people have. And if the pandemic did anything, it reminded us that our neighbors are really important and the people who are right next to us. And it's those communities that provide a, our you know, daily spirit, if you will, and they're the people who will help you in times of crisis. And so maybe focusing on resilience um, and the importance of being a good neighbor, as awful as that sounds, um, in the, the mutual, um, what is it? It's called mutual understanding um, is a lot of the diplomatic terms, but really being a good neighbor um, and focusing on what that means for the long-term sustainability and for resilience. And Shatha, how was your can you comment on that question? Uh, actually, um because it's Elena who asked the question, this reminded me uh, and online of what Christina has just about, uh, said about um, uh, having this understanding and good neighbor, neighborhood. I think um, scholars 
have grown more sensitive to the local community recently. For example, a few years ago, it was um, really um, casual, uh, really acceptable to uh, write, for example, uh, from an archaeological perspective that the Abdul residents in Um Sihun are visually disturbing the, the monuments of, of Petra and therefore to have that uh, written in black and white was acceptable a few years ago. Now, um, nowadays I think scholars are, uh, they are thinking twice before prioritizing archaeological heritage of, over quality of life. So I think there is um, a tendency to be more sensitive to local communities to understand that this is not only a tourism project or heritage project. Sometimes it can uh, impact people's quality of life. And um, I think this change in um, academics attitude has been happening because of uh, another set of politics, which is uh, politics of representation, where local communities have this platform in social media to represent their problems. So I think uh, scholars should take advantage of, of this, um, 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 this vi visibility of local communities and their problems uh, and try to to, to understand this, their problems and to be part of the solution rather than just um, people who are doing their projects, writing their reports and moving on to the next stage. And it is happening actually. Yes, I, I, I think um, yeah, a few years ago, it was really common to, to hear archeologists talking about uh, uh, these things. For example, to write down that that uh, building should not be there or that building should be painted in a different color just because it's, it's disturbing uh, what he sees as a perfect serene landscape that should not be touched. But um, yes, I, I'm optimistic about this change, but as, um, uh, Christina said it needs time and it needs efforts to be invested. Thank you very much. Um, that's fantastic. And we have a, again, couple we are realize we're running out of time a, a little bit, but um, I will, will answer, we'll take another couple of questions from the Q&A. Um, Charlotte Venkman's asked here, um, thank you very much for both presentations. They were fascinating. Um, um, I was curious about both panelists' view on the concept of heritage and the link with property there. Um, many scholars have tried to move away from the economic instrumentalization of heritage, but I'm wondering whether your understanding of the history of heritage development wouldn't put the economic role of heritage very central to its use by different parties, both in the past and in the present. So is, is the economic still king in, the, in, these, in, in, in these sort of uh, uh, conversations as well? Uh, maybe uh, Shatha, would you like? What is the economic lens still um, the ones that you're seeing the this kind of these these funding and these projects coming through? Or are you seeing a broadening of that? Um, I think what, one thing that we have learned in the last couple of years is that uh, the economic factor in terms of tourism is is not sustainable. Tourism have a precarious situation. Uh, in the region, and that's for different reasons. One of them is um, um, politi the political situation of the region. I mean, Petra has been through times where uh, no tourists were there at all. And recently we have this pandemic where the economic source in terms of tourism um, has been uh, faded completely and um, it's recovering now. But uh, one thing that we have learned is that tourism and heritage, uh, tourism can be part of heritage, but it's not all heritage. I mean, uh, one of the meanings that heritage is, uh, people reflect uh, on it when it comes to heritage is this concept of tradition, that they are living heritage, the intangible heritage is part of it, but um, being able to see the past as part of the being, part of the self is also um, uh, something that is need to be uh, paid attention to and um, maybe researched more. Um, education and the education that comes from the past 
is also another theme. One of the things that the Abdul were talking about uh, when we talked to them uh, recently is that the, the, the pause of tourism made them realize how important it is for them to, to have education and to um, stick to their lifestyle away from tourism. Tourism is part of the story, not, not all of it. Thank you very much. Um, we are running out of, of time here. I realize we're at the end here. Um, so I'm going to go to, to Carol here um, to do a final sum up. Um, I would like to thank both both speakers for their answers to the questions that have come up and, um, and uh, their extensive answers has been, been very interesting. Thank you very much, uh, Paul, for introducing and chairing uh, the session and also to uh, Christina and Shada for the very thought-provoking presentation summarising your papers and also for your answers to the, the questions. Um, it's, it's impossible, if I can put a personal perspective on it, it's impossible to listen to the talks and the questions and thank you to our audience too for all of your feedback that you've been also putting in the chat. But not to think about um, the self-reflection of how you've engaged. Um, I've spent a long time in Jordan myself, as many people know, and um, and it is life and the engagement um, and, de- and um, working with local communities is a huge privilege, but also very uh, challenging. You have your viewpoints um, challenged um, all the time and really, I think uh, I like this idea the, of, of deep listening and and, um, and and responding and moving and, and actually being a, a bit humble as a researcher as well, such that you um, such that you respond to to what um, to what people are saying to you. And I've had a number of experiences uh, myself uh, which have very much profoundly changed the way that I like to think and approach uh, approach things and not to ignore um, the knowledge um, of the people that you're that you're working with so thank you thank you very much indeed to you and uh, and also our questioners uh, today um, I think this is a, an ongoing topic um, and I, from the response that we have received um, and our audience's um, interest, I think we should continue this conversation um, at, a, at, another, at another time and perhaps bring in some other, some other speakers too. So I wanted to, again, thank everybody for joining us today and to just CBRL does quite a number of events on yeah, heritage, archaeology, but also um, on, on, poli- on other politics, the politics of our region, geography, um, climate change. So please do keep an eye out on our events page on our website. If you're not already signed up for our uh, mailing list, please do sign up, keep in touch. Um, if you have ideas <laughs> that you would like Um, us to do events on in the future please do let us know so uh, thank you very much um, again and thank you also to uh, Claire Halliday who's been in the background helping us and I wish everybody a good rest of evening afternoon or morning and thank you very much